0: Hello and welcome to Critical QA, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Critical QA videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton@gmail.com. at gmail.com. All right, so first things first, um, I've got some I've got uh, two merchandise sites. And I know, you know, this is uh, not a hot topic for some of you guys, and it is for others, but Down below on YouTube, I have links to a Teespring store which is collaborated with YouTube to create a storefront, Uh, you know, I have a storefront with Teespring which is connected to my YouTube account and you can get merch there and uh, you can see that merch below my videos when you watch them. So you can check that out and I'll be adding to it uh, because all the merch that I have available is also on Spreadshirt and the link to that is also below in the description of every one of my videos as well as linked up in the corner. Uh, You can get to my Spreadshirt store so there's two sources for this stuff doesn't particularly matter which one you use, but you'll probably find it easier to use the Teespring one since the link's below uh, this video. Uh, not, at, not in the description section, but literally pictures of the of the merchandise is below, and you can check that out. So I will be adding to that inventory. I will be coming up with some new designs uh, in the next few weeks, and I will be putting that there, as well as um, catching up on all the stuff that is on my, my um, Spreadshirt store. So it's so so they both match up, okay? And then I'll just probably drop the Spreadshirt store and go totally with the Teespring stuff, but we'll see. I'm not so happy with Teespring behind the scenes on some things, so we'll see where that goes. But all of it available for you guys, so I wanted to put that out for you, put that there for you. All right. Um... Also, podcast this week on sovereign citizens. This is something I've been meaning to get to for a really long time. And a viewer out there sent me uh, something that kind of sprung, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, that. And I got in touch with uh, John P. Capitalist, who has been on my podcast before. We were talking about Scientology stuff. This time we talked about sovereign citizen stuff. And in fact, he's the one who did most of the talking in this one because he knows most about it. So that was actually pretty interesting uh, conversation as well. And finally, I wanted to let you guys know, I, you, uh, boy, I wish I had the time to tell you everything I wanted to tell you. Um, But uh, there's a lot of future content coming that's going to have a lot of this stuff. But I have been researching some of the most fascinating stuff. And the way that I thought I might summarize it for you is that I spent a lot of time coming out of Scientology and learning about what the hell happened to me. What are cults? What are destructive cults? What are high control groups? What is authoritarianism? What is coercive persuasion? What is undue influence? What is brainwashing? What are all, you know, all these, we throw these terms around. And it took me a long time to get my wits wrapped around all of that and explain it, you know, in my videos and make it part of my content and put it out there so that I was not just another... I don't know, talking head about Scientology, about cults, or just another person screaming and yelling about them, I wanted to put stuff out there that would be educational and useful in a context far beyond just destructive cults. Those of you guys who have been following my channel for a while know this and have been um, dedicatedly following me and, and learning about all this stuff as I have been learning it and passing it on. Well, recently now, I've sort of I don't want to say that I've, you know, figured out everything there is to figure out about cults because I have not by any stretch of the imagination. But I have been also diving into and delving into much more um, information that is much more pertinent on a, on a broader basis to um, how our brains work. how the the greater nervous system of the immune system, the endocrine system, the hormones, the, the brain matter, all of this works together, the entire nervous system, because this has a lot to do with how we think and why we think the way that we do, a lot more than I ever imagined it did before I started studying this stuff. And this has given me the answers I've been looking for on emotions and on, dare I say it, certain aspects of why the e-meter works the way that it does. So, for those of you who have been waiting oh so patiently for this metering video, I really do promise that it is coming this year and not by the end of the year, or much earlier. I've actually got some things figured out now that it actually did take me this long to figure out. Maybe it shouldn't have. Maybe I should have been brighter about how I went about my research or more direct about it. But I didn't know that lear- that reading about the brain and certain things about the brain would open up answers about the e-meter. I mean, I kind of suspected some things might have to do with other things, but until you get the knowledge, you don't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. So this has been a very exciting trip for me. Um, and uh, and, it, and uh, all of this information will be passed on to you guys as well. So um, so figuring these things out has been amazing, very, 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 very um, uh, helpful for me, uh, cathartic, I was gonna say. Um, and also, it's enabled me to dump so much more of the Scientology stuff, uh, which is good, you know, on a recovery. Basis, right? People, there's people out there who think that there's no such thing as recovery from cults, that 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 you just move on. And that is really the height of ignorance. There there is, I mean, having lived this, from my own experience, there is no way that you just walk away from a destructive cult experience and it's the same order of magnitude or the same level as I don't know, walking away, you know, going to an amusement park and then leaving at the end of the day. And you're like, okay, well, that was an experience. Well, sure it was an experience, but I'd say a destructive cult experience is a little bit more traumatic and might leave a few more scars than, you know, a trip to the amusement park. I'm just, I'm just kind of pulling that example out of nowhere, but I'm just making the point that there is a recovery process. It does take time. Oh man, does it take time. And it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of work to do this. And um, and I have felt like recently I have hit some very important milestones in that work. So I wanted to just kind of give you guys that much. I know it's, I'm not trying to put it out there as some big tease or or drive you crazy or something or make it like, oh, you know, you just can't. It's I, You know, I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to share what I can about what's happening with me and my experiences here, because there's still layers of the onion coming off, even five or six years later. Um, and I can tell you for sure that, you know, the first year after I got out of Scientology, I never imagined that this would be the road I'd be taking. But it has been an amazing journey. Continues every day to be an amazing journey of education and, and enlightenment and learning and and growing and knowledge and and wanting to pass all of this on to you guys. So um, so a lot, of, a lot of good stuff coming um, as I will continue here. And you guys might just be getting a video this Thursday. <laughs> so you can look forward to that too. Uh, all right. So let's go ahead and now get on with your questions. Mary Neely, most ex-members seem to have left because Miscavige made the organization unbearable. However, I think, as an outsider, the blame still belongs to Hubbard. He was Victor Frankenstein, and Miscavige was his creation. Do you think, if Hubbard were here today, would he have a tirade and ask Miscavige what he did to his enterprise? Or would he pat him on the back and say, well done, grasshopper, I trained you well. If Hubbard has lived longer and there were no Miscavige in charge, would you have stayed? Would you still be in? Okay, great question. So first off, um, recently I did talk about Hubbard and Miscavige and what Hubbard would think about what was going on in the organization now. And basically the answer was, I don't think he'd be very pleased. In fact, I think he'd be, um, you know, if he was still cognizant of what was going on with his little brainchild. Uh, I don't think he'd be very happy with the direction that Miscavige has taken it. He has shrunk the organization by orders of magnitude. He has made Scientology's name absolutely toxic in any public conversation about it if unless of course you're talking to a Scientologist. And um, he has uh, grown the reserves and he's moved the projects forward to you know slam Hubbard's name into history by keeping all of those uh, you know vaults, projects going. So I guess Hubbard might be happy about those things, but generally speaking, I think he would, uh, you know, uh, figuratively decapitate Miscavige if Hubbard appeared back on the scene. Obviously theoretical, since Hubbard's long dead and isn't coming back. (laughs) <laughs> now, as far as uh, what I was interested in with your question here, though, is you asked about whether I would have stayed or whether I'd still be in. And that really got my, it really got my wheels turning because I, I, I was like, wow, I'm not sure. A lot of my answer to that question would depend on whether, if Hubbard hadn't died, if Miscavige hadn't taken over, if there were no Miscavige in charge, you said, uh, would I have stayed? So let's, okay. So let's posit a scenario that Miscavige didn't come along. So the people who were in charge of Scientology when Hubbard took off and went off into hiding, let's say they remained in charge and they never got RPF'd or sent off or kicked out and they continued doing the function of management that we talk about. Would the structure that's created now as I've described in my Scientology Organizational Madness video, would that structure even exist? Probably. Let's go ahead and go with it because the people who came up with that whole structure did so while Hubbard was still alive. So let's assume that the structure that I described in that video exists exists and actually operates the way I said it would. In that situation, would I still be in Scientology? No, I don't think I would because as I laid out, Um, in that organizational madness video, which I'll link to below uh, in the description of this video, you, um, I, sorry, I would still have been in a absolute chaotic madhouse of an an organization uh, because of all the bypass that would be going on all the time. Hubbard was Well, Hubbard was not necessarily the organizational genius that Scientology likes to make him out to be, and the system that was come up with and the way that system was run, regardless of Miscavige, was a system of people giving random orders and directions to other people who had no business doing so. That kind of system is, it begs to be corrupted. It, 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 it practically, you know, begs for it, right? You, it would be so easy for another kind of Miscavige to have come along that even if David Miscavige himself hadn't been the one, somebody else very, very easily could have ridden, risen in the ranks, uh, a Marty Rathman, for example. I think we're pretty clear at this point that Marty Rathman is not a good guy and never was. Now, that's all relative, of course, to our views about Scientology, maybe in real life and in, in the normal course of events. Marty Rathbun is a wonderful guy, a loving husband, you know, a dutiful husband, loving father, whatever, you know, however you want to describe him. Maybe as a person, he's a great guy. But, um, you know, what he's done in regards to Scientology, not so great. And that's the basis of my judgment of the man. So, had he risen in the ranks... You know, who knows what would have happened or, again, somebody else like him. Uh, the fact that the Office of Special Affairs exists, that fair gaming policy exists, that the practice of disconnection is still and was and is still in use under Hubbard, under under Miscavige. Miscavige has made it maybe worse than it was under Hubbard, but the policy was still originated by Elrond Hubbard. I fully agree with you that... L. Ron Hubbard was Dr. Frankenstein, and Miscavige is his monster. So so I don't think I would still be in, because I think that the nature of a destructive cult and the nature of how it's run would have eventually forced me out. And I think that what Mark Headley has always said, that the end result or the EP of Scientology is that you leave Scientology. And according to the numbers that I have, um, which are very, very broad estimates, but you know, for every person who's ever been interested in or gotten involved in Scientology, like ten other people have been, have been there, done that, and took off. Right? I mean, it's a, a massive attrition rate out of that organization. So, um, so I think I would have eventually left, and that's kind of my reasoning on it. And I hope that makes sense. John Scott Adler. I was curious if you had any opinions, theories, or done any research on the origins of Hubbard's demon circuits in Dianetics. These endless engram loops that are supposedly part of the analytic mind are interesting and different conceptually from the classic engram reactive mind stuff that supposedly is what dogs humans. I was hoping you can explain them to me in your clear logical way because I have never heard any other theories except the psychological view of the unconscious on where these patterns come from. Okay, well, I was talking about studying the brain, so let's talk about the brain a little bit. Uh, Not too much, though, because here's the thing. Nobody really knows the answer to your question. And I'm one of those people who just doesn't know. (laughs) So I'm gonna say that straight up. Now, as far as theories or anything goes, I'm gonna go along with what I've read, which is this. There are a great number of things going on in your brain right now that you have absolutely no awareness of at all, nor will you ever. And I'm not just talking about the autonomic nervous system, which runs your heart and your lungs and your intestines. Like, did you know that there are down here something on the order of millions, tens of millions of neurons firing around, keeping this whole system going that you didn't know anything about? Like, that just happens in your body all day every day and you don't know anything about it. Well, there's all kinds of thoughts that are happening in your head that you don't know about. And there are some that you only find out about late in the game. <laughs> um, for example, demon circuits. All right, so this is the, the what Hubbard talks about, how you can wall off a part of the analytical mind that the reactive mind is kind of controlling because of an engram, and it walls off parts of the analyzer, and they just kind of go in these infinite loops of, of phrases or songs or speeches or things you've heard or things you've seen or things you've smelled or whatever. They just kind of keep going and coming back around, at, and, you know, and you have no control over these things, and only by going clear and wiping out your reactive mind do you free up these, in, what Hubbard calls insisted, right? They're, they're cysts, right? Uh, of, of analytical mind get, get freed up again, and you then have more analyzer available to you to compute and think with. Okay, and Hubbard's model, that's how it works. Well, Hubbard's model is pretty much nonsense, but that's, I just wanted to explain that to start with. Um, let's say you're going to work one day. I mean, like one of the classic examples of demon circuits that you, might, that you might be familiar with in a more day-to-day existence are earworms, right? Songs that go on, things you're hearing in your head over and over again, and you can't figure out why. Well, here's the deal, right? There's a lot of parts of your brain that are firing off or doing very, very specific things, there's little, there's little mechanisms right that just that just do a very specific thing and they do it really well and you have thousands of these things going all the time so one of those things is uh, having to hear um, songs in your head so let's say you hear a song on the radio on the way to work uh, or at home you're cooking and you hear some and you hear a song on or you hear it on TV or something and then for now <laughs> For seemingly no good reason, an hour later, you find yourself continuing to hear it. And then you go to bed and you wake up and it's still going. And it's driving you a little nuts, right? Well, there's a part of your brain that is constantly listening, constantly. And when it hears a song, if it's heard it before and it knows the song, it starts filling in the song, it predicts where the song's going. And it starts playing it in your head. And it doesn't particularly stop on its, uh, you know, just because you tell it to stop. (laughs) And again, this is, I'm trying to make the point that there's a lot going on under the hood and some of this stuff bubbles up in unexpected ways, random ways, it, it almost seems. I mean, there is some explanation for it. We just don't know what it is yet. But for whatever random reason, this stuff bubbles up into our awareness and then suddenly we're like, oh, where did that come from? Well, it came from your brain. It came from the same place that you figure out two plus two is four and you know what you want to have for dinner. I mean, these these same computations are happening in the same place. But this one is not necessarily something that is under your active control and so it just sits there. Doing what it thinks it's supposed to be doing, which is playing the song for predictive purposes, so that you know what's coming. Okay, that's just one theory. I'm I'm literally just making that up as far as the the business of its playing it for predictive purposes. But we do know that the brain is always listening, and we do know that it does turn these things on and keep them going. So, and that and that. It's whatever the off switch is for that, we don't, we don't have that figured out yet. Uh, so we've only got this much figured out. And it's a little frustrating when you don't have the, the off switch figured out on some of this stuff. But we do know that the mechanisms of it have to do with uh, modules or mechanisms in the brain is a, is a good way to phrase it. And, um, and that's what I can say about that. So I hope that was somewhat useful. Um, and there you go. Janet Smith. Something really struck me during your interview with Brie Mood. She said she went to Mission Renaissance for school in the Valley. I lived in LA for about six years and during that time, my close friend and roommate got an art teaching job there in the Valley. She had no prior Scientology experience. I remember telling me after her first week that she was being taught how to communicate with small children. That she had to explain every facet of what she was referencing so they would truly understand. I thought that was strange since, you know, their children. Usually, we limit language so they understand. The other thing was she had to use different words and almost a different language. I thought it was so odd, but she really loved it there and after a while talked about the Scientology side less and less. Fast forward 10 years later, I moved back to the Midwest and she's still my friend on Facebook. I see glimpses of her life and she's still working at Mission Renaissance. She shows awards she wins and how much she loves it there. I've always wondered about that school and if you're required to be a Scientologist after a while. And Bree's insight made me think about the students. Do all of the parents realize Scientology runs them? Is this school like a Catholic school where you don't have to be Catholic to go there? Or is it a facade and a feeder institution to get people in Scientology? Okay, Janet, uh, good question here. And I wish I had more specific information about Mission Renaissance. Uh, specifically. So there's some things I'm not, I'm not going to be able to answer in terms of what you're asking me. But here's what I, what I took this question up, though, is because I wanted to specifically address this business about the kids and also about the Scientology feeder lines. Any organization that a Scientologist is in is a Scientology feeder line. <laughs> okay. So. But if it's run by Scientologists, it's a guaranteed way of trying to get people into Scientology, no question about it, none, okay? And Mission Renaissance is a Scientology-based school that uses Hubbard techniques and methods. As I've laid out on my channel here, these methods are destructive to education and are not good for kids, and I hope that um, that information can somehow be gotten to those people because they should know that going to a Scientology school is not necessarily in your child's best interests. There are good things there, but there are way, way, way more not good things, Uh, especially with Hubbard's teaching methods, as I've described in detail. So we won't have to revisit all of that. But uh, you asked, do all the parents realize Scientology runs them? Well, if they do their due diligence, they do. And if they ask any kind of questions about Hubbard or Scientology, it'll probably come up. I'm pretty sure that the school officials and administrators would probably distance themselves from the Church of Scientology and instead would emphasize that they use Hubbard's methods for education and not Scientology. And In their minds, they actually differentiate these as two different things, even though an objective view would show that they are the exact same thing. In a Scientology Academy, you have to look up all your words that you don't fully understand. And by you don't fully understand, what we mean by that is if I ask you, what's the definition of this word in this context, and you can't tell me immediately and at once, you don't understand that word. That's the standard that Scientology arbitrarily imposes as to whether you understand something or not. Keep that in mind because Hubbard's methods are completely arbitrary. There is no authority on education that gave Hubbard the the tablets with the Ten Commandments of education. And this standard of understanding can act as a false standard because it is completely acceptable to understand words and concepts through context without being able to actually say, this is the dictionary definition of this word in this context, you see. We understand almost all of grammar this way, which is actually kind of funny because that's why one of the reasons why it's so difficult to teach grammar is because you kind of already have this native sort of understanding of of how it and what it's doing. So when people describe what it's doing and just, and give definitions to these words, that's why they have so many definitions. I mean, if you look up the word to, T-O, in a dictionary, holy cow, because it has all these uses, you know? All right. Anyway. Um, so, it's up to the parents to do, do, do their due diligence, but I don't believe that Mission Renaissance hides the fact that they are affiliated with uh, Scientology, but I do believe that they will push that it's not Scientology they're doing, it's Hubbard's methods. And they, like I said, they think that's different. Um, as far as whether somebody has to be a Scientologist in order to go to the school— I'm not aware that that would have to be the case. I know for a fact it's not that way up at Delphi in Oregon, uh, and there is a Delphi in Los Angeles. I imagine the same rules apply for Mission Renaissance, that anyone can go there. Um, It is a private school, so I I guess they can be discriminatory if they wanted to be, but I don't think they are because, frankly, I think they need all the money they can get from all the students that they can possibly round up from anywhere. But as far as that feeder line thing goes, I just want to re-stress that um, anywhere you find Scientologists working, especially in groups, you know, if Scientologist owns the company, Scientologist has anything to do with the company, um, they're going to be interested in making you into a Scientologist. If you express any degree of interest, any questions, any, whatever, like, ooh, what's that about? They're going to think you're a hot prospect, and they're going to be all over you, and they're going to try to convert you, uh, because that's uh, what they do. Actually, I should clarify that unless they are a closet Scientologist, <laughs> and in this day and age, I think it's easier and easier to be a closet Scientologist, but uh, specifically when you go into one of these organizations, you're going you're, you're gonna to see it and you're going you're gonna to get uh, proselytized too. So there you go. Turd Ferguson. The incident with Serena Williams and many others before and since highlight a rather galling issue in discourse-slash-human interaction that's currently going on, the deeming of any opponent, ideological or otherwise, as hateful or discriminatory. With Williams, if she's asserting that the male umpire of her match was being misogynistic, then would such a man choose one woman over the other given that he should hate them both? Moreover, given that her opponent, Naomi Osaka, has practically the same skin color, if she's asserting he was being racist in his decisions, again, why would he choose one of these women over the other, given that he should hate them both? Her accusations, along with her behavior in that match, were illogical and petulant, that of a spoiled child instead of the athletic role model she normally is. The terms racist, sexist, fill-in-the-blank phobe, are thrown around so flippantly and so frequently that they have lost the significance they were supposed to retain, making it increasingly difficult to distinguish between those truly worthy of the labels and those who have a disagreement gone awry. My question for you is, why is this acceptable to so many? Why is this behavior placated and often encouraged by our media, who are not admonishing her for this unsportsmanlike display, but patting her on the back? This is the behavior of children on the playground, not something we should be seeing in grown adults dealing with conflict. The short answer to your question is tribalism. It's built into us. It's instinctive. We have no choice. We side. We take sides. We are compelled in almost any conflict that we observe to take a side. If I randomly turn on a football game, The color of the helmets or uniforms might be the deciding factor for me in a game between two teams I don't know anything about, maybe even in a sport I don't know anything about. Something for me will put one team higher than the other automatically. I don't have to think about this. I don't have to put any conscious attention on it at all. It'll just happen. This is how we think. This is how we, we relate with the world. We are built to be in tribes. So it's perfectly natural for us to take sides in conflicts. It's not necessarily the best thing we could do, but it is what we do. So you find people lining up dutifully on social media over any one of these kind of conflicts. Now, I can't speak to, <laughs> you know, it's been quite a while since this even happened, and I'm finally taking this question up, but I can't really speak to Serena Williams' state of mind at the time that this whole thing was going on and she was having that temper tantrum on the, on the court. I agree with you that her behavior was inappropriate and ridiculous, um, and there could be any number of biological, psychological reasons for that, any number of them, and it would be completely insane for me to even wonder (laughs) aloud what those reasons might be. Regardless of the reason for her throwing her hissy fit, she did. And she then used labels that are very popular right now, especially on the left. Uh, identity politics-type labels, labels that are used to reinforce this tribalism. Those labels now have morphed into something different than what they originally meant. And I don't mean the word racism or misogyny has changed its definition, although they are redefining these terms to more closely fit this new mindset that has developed on the left, having to do with this tribalism. And so they have restructured the way they view society itself. And they talk about things like gender being a, a social construct. This is based on very, very bad social science. And uh, I, you know, I, I kind of know where it comes from. I could break it all down. I haven't done that podcast yet, but it's bad, it's bad social science. It's not good. And so these labels, let me get back to this point about the labels, racism, misogyny, this kind of thing. These have become calls for reinforcement, for backup, for help, right? If I am on social media and I'm an extreme leftist, and I start calling you a racist or a bigot or a misogynist or something, that's my effort to get my friends to come in and gang on you and uh, and bring you down, right? through mob mentality, through mob activity. and um, and you know, that's just kind of natural. Uh, to say that the left is the only people who do that would be very grossly mistaken. That would be a that would be a big, huge mistake. This is just one ma- kind of manifestation of, The extreme tribalism that I'm that I'm talking about here. So you know, I could come up with some more examples for folks on the right, um, but uh, you know, we're talking about this thing here. So I'll just keep it uh, keep my criticism to the left this time. So um, this the the urge to be to have allies to get in groups to 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 engage in this mob thinking. is a very natural urge and it's a very strong one. I mean if you feel like you're personally attacked or you're being or somebody's coming after you for whatever reason, I mean you just feel threatened and these days people feel threatened by words on social media, which is a little ridiculous, but they do. If you feel that way, you you then your whole fight or flight system goes into play. And that is a system that you have almost no control over whatsoever and once it goes into play and you are now acting as though you are you know fight or flight threat you know mover whatever Then all the machinery goes into play, and the attacks come out, and these now are going to be manifested again through social media with words rather than picking up your spear and chucking it at the guy, but it's going to be the same mechanisms are in place and the same desire for, you know, take the enemy down. Destroy them utterly, right? Sound familiar? Well, that's the kind of thinking that goes on when you're in fight or flight mode because you feel like you, it's, it's now, it's, it's kill or be killed, right? That's where extremism lives, is in that way of thinking all the time you know when we talk about these spectrums of left and right and the extremism on both ends that's that's where that's what the physical biological manifestation of that extremism is and the people in the middle don't don't get that blah, about it right which is why they can be a bit more chill and frankly a bit more rational and objective and that is the silent majority of most people because most people are not at these extreme ends, right? But we hear more and more about this. And let me get to the other part of your question, which is why does the media um, seem to reinforce this? Because the media's job is to make money. And they they make money through clicks and retweets and shares and likes. That's how advertisers pay them, is by those statistics, those metrics. So if they're not getting clicks and likes and shares and retweets, then they're out of business. So that has unfortunately become the priority of our news media now. Didn't used to be that way back when we had some laws and regulations and standards in place and back before we had a 24-hour news cycle that everybody was frantically keeping up with all the time because, oh my God, I can't be out of the loop. Well, I can tell you, I got myself out of the loop. It's a good place to be. You know, you can keep up on what's going on without getting into that crazy, extreme viewpoint. It's a sign of our times that too many people, especially young people, are, are just, you know, glomming onto this way of interacting. And, and, and I don't know where that's going to go. But uh, hopefully somebody uh, realizes, you know that this is not that social media is not everything it's cracked up to be, and maybe, just maybe we might have a problem with this stuff and what it's doing to us. All right, that all being said, the news media have their priority on making money and on getting the clicks and the likes and all that. So they're going to feed the extremists because... That's salacious content. If it bleeds, it leads. That is still true. People are interested in things that are threatening to them. They are not interested in things that are boring to them, that are routine and repetitive and normal. They want the abnormal. They want the unusual. They want the weird, the strange, the extreme. That is what captures people's attention. Why does it capture their attention? Because we're built. To put attention on things that we think are threats to us. I mean, this is all just same, same, same as I've been saying all along, right? These, these are the building blocks of how we act. So if it's a threat, doing we our attention goes to it, right? And if it's and if we're in an environment like we are now, where we're hit every day with threat after threat after threat to our existence we lose prioritization, we lose importances, we lose, you know, like, uh, priorities. Um, Climate change, for example, I mean, there's a gigantic existential threat to our very existence as a species. And we treat it as though it's it's just another problem in the news, right? So in a way, you get this exaggeration of things that are not that important and then you get a dumbing down of things that are important. That is also a byproduct of what the constant 24-hour news cycle has given us. So, you know, there's a lot of factors here. There's a lot of things contributing to this. I haven't even gotten into the sociological aspects. I'm just talking psychology and biology right now. And then, you know, news critique, <laughs> news media critique. So those are some of the factors off the top of my head that I could talk about here that contribute to a lot of this and make this what it is. Um, it's just, it, it is, it's is, it's us acting the way we're built to act. It's just that with social media and with the 24-hour news cycle, we've been sort of our fight or flight response systems and, our, and, and everything connected with that has kind of gone into overdrive. And that's why all this stress and freaking out and, oh my God, and the mental exhaustion and even indications of of a kind of PTSD can happen as a result of some of this stuff. Uh, That's that's why it's happening. So I don't know. Those are my ideas. Uh, You guys can let me know what you think in the comments, but there you go. This is Flash Answers time, that's right. Mr. Bazzini, you asked that we press the like button at the end of each video, which I obediently do, as it is my way of saying thanks. I was wondering though, does it help your channel in any way? For instance, more prominence in the listings or even helps to link it to ads and therefore making it financially beneficial to you? As always, a solid thumbs up and many thanks hey thanks for asking. Um, it helps a little tiny bit it has uh, it depends on the current YouTube algorithm as to whether it helps or not and that changes all the time. So I encourage people to like my videos because it's kind of a reputation management thing you know lots of likes on videos is good uh, and also I believe that from time to time it has helped in the listings and rankings for my videos to get into other people's um, suggested, you know, watch streams and stuff like that. And don't bother guys out there who know how the YouTube algorithm's, you know, working right now, whether that is or isn't true at this moment. It's not really that important. It's, um, you know, it's not just because I'm trying to get up in the ranks that I ask you guys to like my video. It also tells me (laughs) that you liked my video. (laughs) So, uh, So, if anything, it's a morale booster for me before it's anything else. Adria Holub, how did you come to have Seven the Wonder Cat in your lives? Do you have any other pets? When I first met Melissa, she had Seven. She's raised him since he was just a little, little, insy weensy, tiny kitten. And she's had him his whole life. And so when I met her, he came along for the ride. And no, we don't have any other pets. M.D., do you ever think about producing your own film or documentary? Yeah, all the time. Uh, I sort of create mini documentaries on my channel, and uh, maybe at some point in the future, I'll be able to actually do or be involved in some kind of real production. That would be kind of fun. Um, But uh, right now, it's just sort of something I think about. I mostly just uh, write and work on my channel. (laughs) Okay, guys, thanks for coming around and listening to me blabber on. I really appreciate your viewership. And if you appreciate the answers that I'm putting out here and the content that I give, go ahead and uh, sign up on Patreon because that is what keeps this channel going, keeps a roof over my head, keeps everything going, keeps the lights on. Um, And it is what allows me to do the research and writing and and take the time necessary to get the answers you guys want. That's really my best pitch. Thanks for coming around and watching, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.